Welcome to InfraLogic's Crossroads Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Vitelli. Thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Bill Green, the co-founder and managing director at Climate Adaptive Infrastructure, a California-based fund manager focused on the energy transition. Bill, thank you for joining the pod. Andrew, thank you for having me today. Now, we have a lot to talk about today on the climate transition, the renewables industry, and what it means for an investment to be climate friendly. But first, Bill, can you give our listeners a little bit of an introduction to CAI and why you launched the firm? We were founded four years ago with a specific purpose in mind. We wanted to begin with a blank sheet of paper to address the risks and the opportunities that face the infrastructure industry as a result of the triple threat risks of the climate crisis. You see, we believe that infrastructure is the single most vulnerable asset class when faced with the climate crisis for the very reasons people enjoy and benefit from infrastructure investments. It's permanent, it's long dated, generally has long-term contracts, but these are the same features that put it at such risk in the face of the triple threat of the climate crisis. And in fact, when we began the firm, we had to invent the term triple threat risk to really define the scope of the problem more accurately. When I speak about the climate crisis, most people will think of physical risk, fires, flooding, hailstorms, of course, all real. But we believe there is more. There is policy risk and political risk, and all of this must be taken into account, which is what we do here at the firm when we consider investments in what we call climate adaptive infrastructure. We invest in three sectors, in the energy, water, and urban infrastructure sectors. And we can talk a little more about this later, but we believe that these sectors actually overlap much more dramatically than people realize. Well, thank you for that introduction, Bill. We're recording this today on November 27th. And in front of me, I have the newest edition of The Economist and the Lead story is the climate report card. And I'm looking at the at the headline right now and it says some progress must do better. And I thought that was kind of apt for the state of the renewable sector in the US, where for years we've seen these cross currents where you have efforts like the Inflation Reduction Act, but at the same time, we're seeing offshore wind face some real challenges. We've seen uh, some struggles from companies like NextEra. And then we have the elections next year where it's possible that there could be a new administration, a new Congress, and there could be the IRA could be repealed or adjusted. So, Bill, overall, what do you think the trajectory is of the U.S. renewable sector? And should we be a little bit worried? Andrew, I can tell you and your listeners unequivocally that the trend line into deeper decarbonization is well underway and is irreversible, period. You mentioned a couple of, I would call them red herring events of late. Let me quickly contextualize those for you and take those apart. In terms of the drama with Orsted and the US offshore wind industry, New Jersey, New York, as those close to this would understand, the power purchase agreements, the contracts for the sale of that power were agreed largely pre-pandemic with the states that wanted to develop the offshore wind. Well, pandemic, supply chain crisis, Dramatic spike in interest rates, what a mess. 
when the wind companies went back to the states to say, what a mess, the state said, sounds like your problem, not ours. Wrong answer, in my opinion. I am predicting you will see that soon reversed. And that led to what the media has picked up on as the failure of the offshore wind industry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Regarding Nextera, specifically, while they are a very large stock on the renewable indexes, they are also nothing more than a single business model that has gotten itself in trouble for failing to see around the corner of interest rate increases in supply chain. To put it simply, Nextera is a company that develops solar and wind. When the projects are developed, they, quote, drop them down into a yield entity, which is sold on the stock market. Investors, by and large, who bought that stock expected a stable return. Maybe they knew what they were doing, maybe they didn't. But when the interest spikes and supply chain crunch impacted the value of the projects, the Topco Nextera could no longer drop them down into the Yield Co. at the same price. Yield Co. lowered its dividends. Stock market investors freaked out. And now you have the headlines. The point in both of these cases is we raise interest rates to slow markets down. That's the whole point of the interest rate rises. And they have impacted every business pretty much across the board. The two that have become the clickbait for the pace of decarbonization that we've just spoken about are short-term victims. I predict both will recover and continue to do as well as they did before the rises. But those events are based solely on their unique business model. And I'll say one more thing. The stock market is a lousy indicator of forward trends. The stock market is backwards looking largely, is quarterly results driven, and the stock market is not where we look to determine the pace and trend of decarbonization. So it sounds like a lot of these headlines that have been in the news, negative headlines, you're not too concerned about. Overall, how would you say that the first year, I guess almost a year and a half now, of the Inflation Reduction Act has gone? Has it spurred the increase in activity that policymakers and the industry hoped for? Absolutely, yes. Having lived through 30 years of this industry, I can tell you that nothing is as good as it sounds and nothing is as bad as it sounds. And I've seen all of the ups and downs. In terms of the IRA, very, very effective, but very selective, meaning that while casual observers might think of the IRA as a grant program, uh, as a handout, as a subsidy, it really is nothing more than an extension of a series of tax credits, which can only be earned when your project is complete. So the catch, if you will, is you have to be a company, a developer, who can actually fill a supply chain, build a project, and then claim the credit. As a result, while everyone in the industry thought this would be a package of, of rainbows and unicorns, it's turned out to be extremely beneficial for those companies mature and skilled enough to use it well, and perhaps less beneficial to others who were more aspirational. There have been some implementation glitches, but perhaps the most interesting thing for us is that according to the Financial Times and other analysts, over 80% of the money that's been deployed or allocated has gone into red states. And I would argue that this is, at least in part, by design on the part of the administration to lock the program in place in spite of Republican rhetoric, 
This is a program that is extremely well distributed in red states. And we have personally met with governors of red states who have basically said things like, my state, and I won't name names more specifically today, is going to be the hydrogen hub of this part of America, et cetera, et cetera. These are unexpected and I think quite welcome trends, notably because I think this administration knows that you know you win an election, you get four years, you better make sure programs like this can endure beyond that period of time. I think this one will. So are you worried at all that a change in administration could affect the IRA or do you think that it's built into the cake enough and has broad enough support because of that red state focus that there's not a huge reason for concern? Given what I've seen in my professional lifetime, I'm always worried. I'm worried that we're not meeting our decarbonization targets quickly enough. And I'm worried that all kinds of crazy and unpredictable things could happen, dot, 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 again. Right? So I come from a, from a position of worried. But I will also repeat what I said earlier. When Obama was elected, I sat on my couch on, uh, on election night and cried tears of joy thinking that my work here in combating the climate crisis would be done. When Trump was elected, I sat on that same couch and cried tears of sadness, thinking my work on the climate crisis would never be done. And you know what? Trump vowed to bring back coal and some 40-odd coal companies went bankrupt or out of business during his term. My point here is that Obama did not solve the problem as much as he was positioned to do so. Remember, we had a Democratic House and Senate and president, and Trump didn't throw us into climate hell as much as he tried. I would much prefer a tailwind than a headwind to do the work that is so critical to CAI and all of us. But I do think that some of the hand-wringing is a bit overrated because some of these things are inexorable. Let me just give you one quick example. Many of your listeners will know that there was just a strike. The United Auto Workers went on strike. Better pay, we've heard it before, same sort of thing. If you look under the covers, what you will see is that a big part of the UAW action was based on ensuring that the battery and electric vehicle factories being built largely, if not exclusively, in right-to-work states with no unions would come under the UAW union banner. These auto workers know better than any of us that when a combustion engine plant is shut down, there is no chance that that plant starts up again. My point is that the EV revolution and all that it will pull forward with it is inexorably underway, will not be reversed. Yes, it will have fits and starts and high interest rates will slow car sales and blah, 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 but we are not going back to combustion engines, period. So when you digest that, when you think about that, you realize again why we would say directionally, we are on a journey that may not be going quickly enough and that will have fits and starts, but is moving in a certain direction that will not be reversed. I guess if you've been in the industry for a long time, you're going to see changes in politics, changes in administration, and it's going to be about sticking it out through that. So that makes sense. Now, another big question is what role oil and gas investments can continue to play during the energy transition. We've seen a lot of traditional energy giants who are now investing in renewables, have a renewables platform, and are putting forward something of an all-of-the-above strategy. Do you think that's a viable solution? Can we continue to build out 
our renewable generation while at the same time also moving forward with new oil and gas investments? Well, I'll take all the help I can get as a starting point. So certainly any honest broker who enters the conversation and attempts to advance the things that we work on, the energy transition, the water transition, urban infrastructure, data centers and the like is welcome. I think the complexity, perhaps the challenge, is when you dig a little deeper, who is doing this because they really have leaned in and are doing it seriously and and who is doing this so that they can put something up on the website or on the television that says, X, Y, Z, we are part of the solution, not the problem. And I think you will find that there is a wide range of truth when you look more deeply into this. I read a statement from an oil executive the other day who had announced quite publicly their commitment to carbon capture and sequestration, and who was then recorded privately saying something to the effect of, hey, federal government's going to put a bunch of tax credits out there, and I'm going to be the first to get them. Not that I believe in carbon capture and sequestration. I believe in money. So, you know, it does make one wonder uh, what lies behind the rhetoric. I will say that at our firm, we do not engage in opportunities that are adjacent to the oil and gas industry. We've been approached to make investments in what is called blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen made from natural gas with carbon capture, allegedly. We have not and likely won't do anything like that. We believe that there are ample opportunities that steer clear of the risks of being caught in the fossil fuel trap. Uh, We believe that fossil fuels are inherently challenged around profit and while we, we understand that people will invest where they see fit. So in closing on this point, our firm has elected not to invest in the adjacencies of oil and gas and the transition. Uh, we believe there are uh, plenty of opportunities to continue to work in what I would call more of a pure play fashion to ensure that the transition continues. So, Bill, you do have in in your portfolio one peaker plant, the Sentinel Energy Center, that some would see as more of a traditional asset. How did you find that that fit into your firm's outlook and your firm's focus on the energy transition? Perfect question. So there's an example of a pure play transition investment in which we studied the CAISO system, the California ISO system, made a determination that Peaker plants currently, as you say correctly, run on natural gas, are an indispensable part of the system. You see, batteries can be charged and discharged for four hours. Four hours may not cover the intermittency that is created by the massive infusion of wind and solar into the CAISO system. So the peaker plants are and will always be an integral part of the system. So it's a question if they run on natural gas and we want to move away from that, what to do. So we, along with our partners, identified the Sentinel Energy Center as one of the most critical peakers in California because it sits in Palm Springs and it backstops at this point 12 gigawatts of intermittent wind and solar. We purchased it and we are converting it to run on green hydrogen. So this is a great example of an asset transition strategy. The purchase was made from day one based on the introduction of green hydrogen. We are beginning that work today. It will come in in tube trucks as opposed to through the pipeline. But our gas supplier, Southern California Gas, has announced that it is on a trajectory as well to be supplying green hydrogen to its key customers, one of which would be Sentinel. So you see 
We didn't buy it to operate it as a gas peaker. We bought it to operate it as one of the first peakers to be on a full pathway to renewable energy using green hydrogen. And what timeline do you expect that to take place? We've already designed the test protocols. We're working with the Air Resources Board to make sure that when we do introduce green hydrogen, we'll be compliant with all of our permits. So this work is imminent. All right, great. Well, thank you for that, Bill. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned the case of one energy CEO investing in carbon capture and then later saying privately, well, I don't care about the green benefits. I just want to take advantage of these incentives. But is that a bad thing? I mean, if policy is correctly designed, shouldn't we be focusing on an alignment where the best financial interest of investors is going to align with what's good for the energy transition? Isn't that in the end going to be more effective than counting on people really just caring intrinsically about the environmental benefits of their projects? The problem is is a math problem. If all of the oil companies that exist today take their identified reserves out of the ground, the temperature on the planet Earth will rise well beyond any safe limit. So the dilemma you see is how to manage the remaining reserves of oil and gas held by for-profit companies when each of them says, I have a right to do what I need to do for my shareholders. This is in a way, and I don't want to get too philosophical in the short time we have, this is a problem of the commons, you see. Each company, while privately owned, can do what it wishes to do for its shareholders, but taken in the aggregate, it is a non-sustainable path. So in the short time we have left, I would simply say that the more quickly we can transition into a sustainable, low-carbon energy, water, and urban infrastructure ecosystem, the better off we will be. Well, thank you, Bill. We've spent a lot of time on the energy side of your business, which uh, is fitting since I think a lot of our listeners come from that part of the sector. Uh, But I wanted to spend a little bit of time of the remaining time we have left on data centers, because that's also a really interesting investment when it comes to how it affects the climate and the energy transition. Data centers are obviously a huge part of our lives moving forward as there's more and more data to store. At the same time, they use a lot of energy, which isn't ideal. You're involved in data center businesses. How do you make sure that these aren't having a negative contribution when it comes to the energy transition? And how do you position those investments? Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, right? With uh, the Internet of Things and and AI becoming ubiquitous, we will inevitably use more and more energy in data centers. So for a long time, and a little bit of background on this, data centers were considered by the investors who, who invested in them to be sort of a real estate investment. Yeah, it was a building with four walls, and you had a tenant, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and uh, you collected rent. I'm oversimplifying. When we looked at this, we said, wrong. If a data center sells 80% of its product being electrons, if 80% of the money moving through a data center, whether it's a pass-through to the customer or supplied, irrelevant, is an electron, you are in the climate adaptive infrastructure business. And by the way, of the remaining 20%, 10 or 15% of that can be water used for cooling. 
So we began this conversation with some of the largest owners of data center infrastructure, and they, surprisingly, were on a similar path and began to understand that not only capacity constraints to obtain power in certain geographies, but the client demand would drive them to become more and more renewably powered and sustainable. Now, what's interesting about that is a lot of what's going on in the trend towards deep decarbonization, as we've spoken about earlier, is demand-driven, is client-driven. That could be uh, me as a resident of California switching to a CCA, which is a community choice aggregator or, in effect, a private utility that offers to sell me more green power. There are a lot of those in California, including in Marin County, where I live. Or it could be Amazon. Google, Microsoft, Netflix, Apple, demanding of their data center hosts that they provide 100% green power with additionality. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. We had a meeting of the minds with some of the largest data center owners and operators. Our investment is in one of the most sophisticated data centers uh, on the planet, which is 100% renewably powered today, but is also growing very rapidly. Therefore, their need to continue to source green power is growing exponentially. That's where our firm comes in by helping them obtain that green power, whether it's through our hydro resources or through our solar and wind resources or through our storage resources. The sector has pivoted, and I think not a moment too soon. I think you will you will see in the next year or two a virtual sea change towards 100% renewably powered data centers. I mentioned additionality. This is the complexity. It is possible today to green your business, any business, data centers included, by buying a green credit, a renewable energy credit, or green credit of some sort generated by someone else. What more and more sophisticated customers are demanding is not that you purchase a credit that has already been created and exists on the market, but that you use your dollars to directly create additional renewable energy, hence the term additionality. This is actually excellent for our industry because it's creating more and more demand for new products, new projects that are purpose-built to serve these massive energy and water consumers. Something to watch. Well, thank you, Bill. That is very interesting. And a lot more we could cover, but I think we're just about out of time. So, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I'll have to have you back on someday to uh, to cover water uh, water investments, too. Well, let's not make it too long. I look forward to it. Andrew, you're an excellent host, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you again, Bill. And thank you for tuning in to Crossroads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And please give us a five-star rating so that others can find our podcast. Until next time, this has been Crossroads.